Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And this week's guest is a friend to you and me. You heard them on the Friday the 13th Part 2 episode, and now we're going to talk about something much bleaker. Please welcome (laughs) Russell Qualls. How's it going, pal? Pretty good, considering the content. Quite a shift in tone from your last appearance, to be sure. To some degree, yeah. I mean, at least we talked about the scariest Friday the 13th at that time, (laughs) instead of the really dumb ones. Very true, very true. (laughs) So, since we didn't really get to get into it on the Friday the 13th episode, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror and how you got into it? So, that is an interesting path. I was never big into horror as a kid. I guess I was probably sheltered. That's probably the real reason behind all that. (laughs) I was also very scared of pretty much everything. So, you know, it feels like I should have been, like, exposed to some horror thing that really scarred me. I don't know what it was, (laughs) but I've talked to you about this before as sort of half-joking, half-serious about a movie you should do on your show. is one of the, like, earliest shocking in-your-face things that I saw was Passion of the Christ. Yeah. Which is a weird, gory Christian movie about (laughs) Jesus being tortured. Very strange. The first torture porn, so to say. To some degree it is, and probably because it's making a horrifying remark about the Jews, given its director, but we can skip that. (laughs) Then further church-related horror that I also saw, one of the, like, maybe the first big horror movie I can remember seeing was at a church lock-in of all places. I watched Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead remake, which I feel like comes up a lot on your show for a certain generation of person. I stood... Like, I could not sit down and watch it, because I was like, I don't know what this is. It's weird and freaky, and, like, I had to have a physical remove from it just to, like, stand it. It's very strange. That's the one with, like, the zombie baby and everything, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I should rewatch it. I don't remember anything about it except a boat. Well, it sounds like you remember the most vital part, which is zombie baby. Yeah. So. <laughs> that one kind of sticks with you. For sure. But then past those things... I was real into contextless horror scenes and stuff. I would always mm-hmm. watch, like, every Halloween, Bravo would show the 100 scariest horror movie scenes uh, shows, and I would watch those and be... I hated watching them, but I could <laughs> not stop watching them because I'm like, what the fuck is any of this stuff? <laughs> that was even, t- like, I feel weirdly tapped into J-horror at the time, so it would show, like, stuff from The Grudge and the original Ring and all that stuff, and also Ginger Snaps and these things you didn't really hear about mainstream at the time, and I was right. so fascinated by that kind of stuff. It was bizarre. And then, in college, to top it all off, I would just stay up all night reading weird conspiracy theories or the nightmare fuel pages on TV tropes and just read about the most horrifying things you've ever heard. That's why I know the plot to Serbian film, and that's how I first heard about martyrs. And I'm like, just in writing, that's so much more freaky than ever seeing it. Absolutely. It wasn't uh, the same exact websites, but I feel like we went on a very similar path in that I was heavy on Wikipedia reading synopsises Mm -hmm. and stuff. I was the same way. Like, for the longest time, the Paul is dead theory, like, seriously freaked me out. (laughs) Well, he is, you know. He could be, and we would never know. (laughs) And, like, I hate not knowing things. Like, big mysteries like that, that we'll just, we'll never know the answer to if this happened or not. I hate that shit. Sure, and I think that that's a great segue into your favorite subgenre, which, uh, as far as I understand, has to do a lot with sort of more existentialism than anything else. Yeah, I definitely like existential horror. Like, I love slashers. Slashers are good. That's the thing that finally got me all the way in, your Jasons and, you know, even Halloween, which is my favorite. But I still like that 
flavor of this isn't you don't have to take this too seriously it's just sort of a theme park ride yeah but like existential horror really gets me those kind of questions things that are at the depth of like why are we here who are we is there (laughs) purpose there's no purpose but that's horrifying like i really watched last year she dies tomorrow which is i think one of the more lynchian movies in a way that you don't hear it typically talked about it's like about the idea that you're going to die passing as a virus among people which I feel like is weirdly Lynchian sort of in a way that isn't explored very much. I thought that movie was great. For people who are into horror, these these kind of existential questions are one of the few ways that you can really still kind of shake yourself Mm. and really feel that fear of being unimportant in the grand scheme of things or, or the lack of a grand scheme at all. And that's part of why Solaris spoke to me so much is because of that Mm. question at the core of it of like, how can you know anyone else when you can't, you can't even ever really know yourself. Mm. And like, see, that's one I haven't seen, but one I'm almost sure I would enjoy just because I know it's on those themes. And it's like, yeah. Oh man, it's great. It's Mm -hmm. just so great. I love talking about that movie and I'm sure that everyone is tired of hearing about it. (laughs) I can't imagine that's true. If they listen to your podcast. (laughs) Well, hopefully that's the case, but (laughs) the movie we're talking about today fits right in with that in terms of humanity's sort of, uh, capacity for cruelty and and mm-hmm. our, our own self-destructive nature and the movie we're talking about is the british australian co-production from 1984 threads written by barry hines and directed by mick jackson this movie depicts the collapse of the world and the resulting nuclear winter after an exchange of nukes between the u.s and russia yeah i basically listened to your uh, how i learned a dr strange love and love the bomb <laughs> and stopped doing things and thought hold my beer <laughs> Yes, yes, very much. This is sort of the other side of that coin. Well, it's interesting because with that one, there is sort of the the threat of nuclear disaster being yeah. very scary. And I do still stand by the fact that that was an appropriate movie for the show. Oh, I think it is. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think that this movie, in addition to that, is much more explicitly horrifying in what is shown on screen yeah. instead of just sort of letting your imagination do the work. And boy, does it. <laughs> <laughs> It still lets your imagination do plenty of thinking. Also true. Also yeah. true. Part of what makes this movie very interesting to me is because it's filmed pretty flatly. <laughs> it's not quite a documentary style, but it's clear that they want the content to be the focus, not the look of the movie. They also utilized unknown actors for the same reason, going for as close to realism as possible. And I think that that is, first of all, great decision. Mm-hmm. And second of all, hugely effective in this movie. Yeah, I think it's really interesting on that point. It gives you a remove in some way, but it's also very immediate. Like in a lot of ways, it feels like almost an adaptation of like a novel to me because it is very character focused. And like, it's about the person in the situation, which is part of the horror of the thing is these people are so powerless. Right. Absolutely. And as we sort of get attached to them, it puts a face on the disaster Mm -hmm. in a way that not every disaster movie succeeds at. Yeah, absolutely. And it even goes a little over the top to some degree. It's a very soap opera-y story, but it's right. something like it manages to work. I, I can't figure out why, but it really does. Yeah, absolutely. So to talk about where this movie came from, we have to go back a few years. In the 60s, a movie called The War Game came out, and it dealt with a similar topic, but the government at the time, run by Prime Minister Harold Wilson, deemed it, quote, too horrifying for the medium of broadcasting, and they feared that it would cause mass suicide. It was shown in limited theaters, though, and uh, I did watch this in preparation, and... As did I. When I read that, I was like, 
come on. <laughs> and then I watched it and I was like, you know, if I was living in a time where the threat of nuclear apocalypse was as imminently hanging over my shoulder and yeah. I could see the concern that this would cause suicide. If you had just gone through or about to go through the Kennedy, I mean, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. Like, I could understand that. <laughs> the fear is legitimate, I will say. Mm-hmm. But one of the people who did get to see it was Alistair Milne, who would become the director general of the BBC in 1982. And he said, this is an important topic, which I agree with, and commissioned the film then titled Beyond Armageddon, which... A great name. This has a little bit more mystery and a little more draw to it, I think, Threads yeah. does. And if people discover it today, they won't think it's a sequel to Armageddon, so that's probably a good <laughs> thing, too. So true, so true. But you won't want to miss a thing. <laughs> <laughs> you might want to miss a few of these things. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> so he hired Mick Jackson as the director thanks to his work on the documentary A Guide to Armageddon, which had itself been a breakthrough for the BBC in terms of content discussing the ramifications of nuclear war, especially in the 80s with the Cold War in full swing. And so Jackson continued the research he'd started for that documentary, traveling to the US and around the UK, talking to psychologists, doctors, defense specialists, and strategic experts in order to create the single most realistic portrayal possible. This was brought even more to the forefront when Jackson saw the American equivalent of this movie, or what many people consider to be the American equivalent, the day after. The difference kind of lie in the fact that it featured more well-known actors like Jason Robards and Steve Gutenberg, plus the setting was a little bit sanitized. The director of this movie specifically pointed out the hospital scene, complaining <laughs> about the continued availability of electricity, and so he said... The idea of nuclear war informing a new species of made-for-TV disaster movies was the worst thing that could happen to my mind. I wanted to show the full horror and felt that was absolutely my responsibility. And I'd love to get your take on this sort of development and maybe increased palletization of nuclear warfare and its usage in movies like we are more classic disaster movies yeah i don't know see i just watched the day after and like it's not as hardcore as this one because it simulates sort of a different thing and also it's american so it's going to have american sensibilities and a strike on america especially kansas is going to be a slightly different thing like, apparently, I don't know if it's true, but in the movie, Kansas houses and Missouri house, like, a number of missile silos. So, like, they are struck there, but they're outside of Kansas City, which is, like, the main setting or outside of Kansas City sort of is. Right. And so, like, it's not, like, it's not blood gushing and running down the steps and all the stuff that happens here. But it <laughs> is, it's still horrifying in its own way. Like, right. the hospital is a horrible place. There are, like, <laughs> six people crammed onto beds as a woman gives birth. I mean, in a, I guess in a contrast, this one, the baby does survive in that one. <laughs> they didn't go that far. <laughs> yeah, I guess they were reacting to that one in a few ways. And like it ends on a hug <laughs> and it was made for ABC. But I was telling you earlier, apparently Reagan did actually see that. And that changed his mind on nuclear war. Like I was reading about him. He had used it as like the proliferation, like arms race with the Soviet Union to that point. Right. And he didn't go to nuclear briefings before he saw that movie. And after he did, he started going to those briefings and was apparently shocked. So there you go, Jackson. Yeah. If it works, it works. Mm -hmm. 
one of the other things that Jackson examined was the psychological effects of the bomb and fallout on the Hibakusha, which is the Japanese designation for those who are affected by nuclear weapons dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Coincidentally, but appropriately, we are recording on the anniversary of the U.S. bombing of Hiroshima, and it will be released on the anniversary of the Nagasaki bombing. Yeah, isn't that wild? I did not realize that at all until this morning. Um, that shit sucks. Yeah. I think it goes without saying, I don't think that we should have bombed those yeah. cities. I didn't even, it never even occurred to me. I, I read a, like a small, it's basically a pamphlet, but it was a collection of an article written a few years and then maybe like 10 years after that by an American journalist. And like, he pointed out, like, we didn't even say we're going to uh, drop bombs on you if you don't surrender. We didn't even give J- Japan a chance to surrender. Like, right. It, uh, it's just mind-blowing. War crime? Who can mm-hmm. say? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we could say. I yeah, say yes. we can. One of America's <laughs> many. And so the sort of the lasting impacts of that, you know, at this point, there had been several decades of sort of evidence to and, and research that he was able to draw from and sort of see and apply that in a sort of broad sense to the English sensibility. Mm-hmm. The city of Sheffield was chosen as the setting of this movie for two reasons. First, it stood to reason that the Soviet Union would strike at an industrial town, specifically one that was in the center of the country, since the UK is not particularly huge. Mm-hmm. Second of all, during the 1982 party conference, the Labour Party had gotten the two-thirds majority required to declare unilateral nuclear disarmament the official party standpoint, and so many Labour councils, including the one in Sheffield, declared themselves to be a nuclear-free zone and were sympathetic to the point of the movie, so they were eager to get in on it. Mm. The budget for this movie was low, 400,000 pounds sterling, according to the commentary, and that meant things like an umbilical cord made of licorice and bran flakes, gelatin, ketchup, and Rice Krispies for the burnt skin makeup. But it's interesting to me that not only do I think they still totally work, I think mm-hmm. that they look awful yeah. <laughs> in the best way, but also our focus isn't really on the effects because you're so like reluctant to really look at it. Absolutely. Your focus is more on just the complete destruction and devastation, which does look spectacular in this movie. Mm-hmm. So does the, the effects like the makeup looks great. Yeah. Like you can sort of tell at some points it's using a low budget. Like they use a little bit of stock footage, but I mean, even their effects look better than the day after. So like, <laughs> it's really stunning how well they can do ABC. You got to put up the big bucks. Come yeah, on. <laughs> you'd think they would. That was before Disney bought So this movie was broadcast late on a September Sunday in 1984, and Threads was watched by the biggest audience for any channel for the rest of the night, and in fact, the rest of the week, with a 40% share and about 6.9 million viewers. This was not only because of the drama around the movie, but also, as they said, symptomatic of the public's desire to stare into the apocalyptic abyss that they half-believed lay in wait for them. And I checked, and in a 1982 Gallup poll, it indicated that a full 38% of people believed nuclear war was inevitable. Yeah, and I think that's one of the like most effective parts of this movie, is every moment that they're like, oh, they're fighting, oh, it's going to happen. There's You can see, like even on the actor's face, there's this moment of, oh, I can't believe this was ever going to happen, and it finally happened. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really horrifying. For sure. It, it, the, the dread, the impending dread, the sort of just acceptance that this is coming mm-hmm. is really uh, bleak. It is. Mm-hmm. And reception to the movie was positive, although there was obviously some pushback on it because mm-hmm. it is very grim and intense. But a lot of people, including the opposition leader at the time, said that it is important for people to be aware of the possible ramifications rather than live a life of blissful ignorance. Sure. Which I also agree with. And it has continued to grow in appreciation as nuclear proliferation continues, and even recently has been on people's minds again. I know there was a a, like mass rewatch when the Hawaii defense system issue happened a few years back. Oh yeah. And uh, you know that's that's scary stuff too. And it's it's interesting because for me at least that was the first time that nuclear warfare had ever really even entered my mind as a real possibility you know when when we went into iraq they claimed that there were nuclear weapons but as they never really manifested because they never existed it was so far from my my thoughts really and so we didn't grow up in a time period like the cold war or like after the bombing of japan and so for this to all of a sudden be like a real thing that i thought was happening i was like Mm -hmm. oh that's really scary yeah the thing with that, even we didn't grow up in a society that talked about it a long time, but like it was still a threat. I was just reading today that Bush in like 2000 withdrew from the big non-proliferation treaties oh, and man. he threatened to use nuclear weapons in Iraq if they ever found any biological weapons. Ugh. Ugh, it's horrifying. Yeah, it's not good, not no. good folks. And it's so, yeah, it, at that time it was so looming over your shoulder that I can't imagine watching it then. Yeah. But, like, I feel like we should still be watching it because we don't think about this anymore. And we're still allowed to keep 100 nuclear warheads at all times, which would sure. destroy the Earth. Absolutely. And, I mean, you even see about it in the sort of callous way that people throw around, like, expressions like, Every time North Korea pops off a little bit, you get the same fucking edgelords who are like, Ugh, just glass it. Like, just fucking drop nukes on it uh-huh. until they're out of uh, out of existence. And I don't think that people would be so quick to say shit like that if they watched this movie and had a, a more complete understanding of what nukes really do. Yeah, some people wouldn't. That kind of person right. would probably be more into that, but that's because there are just some lost causes out there. But let's get into the movie. No time no time like the present. The narrator jumps in, and I do want to get your thoughts on the narrator's existence in a second. But everything is connected in a way that makes us strong, but also susceptible to collapse, the narrator tells us. He essentially says, connections make us powerful, but they will break instantly. <laughs> Which, he's not wrong. So the, the narrator is something that the writer and the director fought about. I read that, yeah. And... I wanted to, I mean, it's hard to say because you didn't get to watch it without a narrator, but I'm curious if you think it would have been improved without narration. I think there's so little narration and it's used so like strategically and surgically almost that Mm -hmm. it makes sense. It's used at the beginning and a little to set up a couple things and then not used again later Mm -hmm. until we get like the sci-fi portion, which isn't the strongest part anyway. I think it works for me. I don't think you'd gain much by losing it because you still have the title cards. Yeah, I I think it's interesting. I hadn't considered losing it until I read that. I will admit that some of the ones that do just pop up in the middle kind of feel like they came out of nowhere because it's used so sparingly. Yeah. But I agree that I don't think that there would have been any like 
it would have been a thousand times better by losing it. And yeah. so obviously get rid of it. I think that it, it does work and it does help to give it that kind of documentary feel that makes it feel more like you're watching something that could actually happen. And it also probably helped audiences at the time not think it was a War of the Worlds. Sure. <laughs> with, like, no announcer opening the show and, like, here's a show that's happening. Nuclear attacks are coming. Okay. Wow. This really could have been the next War of the Worlds. <laughs> yeah. But we open in Sheffield, England on a Saturday, March 5th, and a young couple, Jimmy and Ruth, are up on a cliff overlooking the city making small talk and enjoying the peace of being on the outskirts of civilization, which is very ironic. In the background, the radio finishes playing some tunes and turns to the news about civil war in Iran before Jimmy quickly switches it to a football match. Some very Americana 50s rock and roll music. Oh yeah, Johnny B. Good plays several times in this movie. Mm -hmm. I actually watched this movie twice, and seeing how peaceful things are in the beginning... And knowing where it winds up, it does such a great job of ratcheting up the tension that we're waiting for the whole time. Even the first time through, you're obviously very tense. You, you know what's coming. They do a great job of setting it up. But just seeing how far it degrades, like... Mm-hmm. This, you just want to shake them and be like, yeah. get the fuck out of here, guys. Or even for me, all the time, for my whole life, I've thought post-apocalyptic movies are like, so I'm not big into them. I'm like, this is ridiculous. This is silly. This works as such a good bridge of seeing us go from this to roving bands of Fallout, people listening to 50s music on their pit boys. The Day After is almost even better about that because it's American, so everyone has a gun, and those gun hordes <laughs> of people are already out and around by the end of the sure. movie. Wow. Yeah. Sounds bleak. <laughs> and so, yeah, Jimmy's just up there. He's trying to get lucky with Ruth. They have mm-hmm. no idea the scope of the madness that's about to unfold. Cuts to two months later, Monday, May 5th. We join a newscast in progress discussing the Russian convoy entering northern Iran to the U.S.'s displeasure, who Russia is currently accusing of instigating the coup that happened a week earlier. Wouldn't be the first time. (laughs) And the camera pulls out to show once again that nobody is paying attention, and that this time we're in a pub. And the way that this movie just shows people ignoring the signs (laughs) is so effective. It's so great. I think it's one of the movie's really great strong points in setting up this tension because that's what feels real. Like, you mm-hmm. know, it's it's hard to stay engaged with the news when A, it's constantly bad, and B, it's a 24-hour news cycle, which they didn't even have to deal with at the time. But as we saw with Trump, every new thing winds up taking over the last thing, and so there's no time to really, like, sit with anything and and... With this civil war, like, you just don't want to engage with it all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. I can understand why, at a bar, <laughs> nobody is like, oh, shit, can't believe that the U.S. started another coup, and mm-hmm. uh, and now they're fucking tearing shit up in the Middle East. You know, it, it's, it's, it's what makes it so relatable, I think. Yeah. Well, and the seed of that point is that Jimmy's friend says to him later, there's nothing we can do about it. And one of the main themes of this, the remove of the news is constantly on, but unconnected from people is there. None of these people have any power to affect this in any way. Like it's all the politicians at the top who are playing these games of people's lives, millions of people's lives that they're not connecting to what they're never seen. They're never on screen in this, which I think is another one of its most effective points. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, we'll definitely talk about this as it becomes more visible, but 
we see multiple times crowds of people standing up, speaking out, crying mm-hmm. out, saying, this is the wrong move. Do not do this. And every time it just it makes literally no impact. They're hustled away. Well, those are just communists. <laughs> so, so true. Those dirty commies. Yeah. I did laugh. I know we both watched When the Wind Blows as well. Mm-hmm. And every time <laughs> she was like, blooming commies. I yeah. was like, <laughs> <laughs> Another good movie. Yeah. I don't know that it will come up otherwise, but people should check out When the Wind Blows as well. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting, the flashpoints in those. In this one, it's uh, Iran. In the Wind Blows, it's the Afghanistan War. And right. in the war game, it's West Germany. So it's just even frightening to think about all the various <laughs> flashpoints that could have set off a nuclear war at any time. Right. And each movie has a different one to explore. Everyone knows it's just at each other's throats. It's, it's mm-hmm. absolutely terrifying to consider. We see the couple again, quietly discussing Ruth's missed period and what they're going to do before we jump to May 8th, where Jimmy tells his parents that they're getting married. They reluctantly tell him to do what he's got to do, but it's a bad time to start a family in the middle of a recession, after all. Again, sort of laying the groundwork for there being economic reasons that the government might have war on the mind as well. Thanks, Thatcher. It's at this point on Wednesday, May 11th, that the movie reveals Sheffield is the fourth largest city in England and an industry town near a handful of military targets as well. Mm -hmm. Also, we find out while the two families are arriving to meet for the first time that a U.S. submarine has gone missing off the coast of Iran. Probably unrelated. Probably. (laughs) We don't need to worry about that, I'm sure. (laughs) I like at this point, we really contrast that Jimmy's family are like lower middle class and roofs are very upper middle class. Right. And we will see that comes into effect of their survival rates later. I also think that, I mean, we've already kind of touched on it, but the way that the information works so parallel to the family drama Mm. is really impressive. You know, every news source is constantly sounding the alarm. You have the radio and the TV as obvious sources, but the headlines and show newspapers all deal with the impending doom as well. And we're getting to know these families and get attached to the situation that they're in. You know, Mm -hmm. the fact that Jimmy's parents do ultimately support him, even though they're not thrilled about it. You're like, oh, wow, that's like, that's great for them. Yeah. You get to like, like his little brother who's like, what's (laughs) an abortion? Yeah. And his parents, because they're like, you can have an abortion if you want. Yeah. They're surprisingly okay with it. Right. That feels very progressive for the time. Uh-huh. But so the the U.S. and the Russia are on the precipice of war at this point when the narrator breaks down the English plans for armed conflict resulting in the case of the fall of centralized government, explaining that the power basically gets doled out to local officials. And unfortunately... They're not all very well trained, and in fact, many of them don't even know that they hold some of these positions. That's frightening in and of itself. (laughs) Even more upsetting by the fact that when you watch the war game, you realize this was the plan since the 60s, and (laughs) still nobody has been trained. Yeah. (laughs) And on the 20th, the U.S. enters Iran to protect Western interests what oil that means. Yeah. And at one point they literally say that they're like defending oil fields. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're just like, Oh my God. But we see the wheels of war start to turn. They're assembling the officers. They're gathering and checking stores. They're prepping shelters. And as real aircraft start filling the sky, Jimmy's brother finishes assembling a jet fighter model and plays with it. And the DEFCON equivalent for England goes up another color. Mm. I feel like they are trying to say something about sort of the normalization of warfare mm-hmm. in terms of Jimmy's brother here. I couldn't quite tell what the game that he was playing was. 
And so I felt like that would be another place, but <laughs> Yeah, I think that's unrelated. It should have been like missile command. Right. But it seems like, like a little person running away from a cartoon bear or something. <laughs> they even bring it back later and it doesn't really make sense then either. Yeah, it's just used as like a connection point between father and son instead. Yeah. And sort of, I guess, the modern world versus right. the I guess medieval world we find eventually. Sure. But it does feel like that could have been another opportunity. Yeah. So nothing like 40 years late backseat quarterbacking. Right? Hey, when we make Beyond Armageddon, we'll put that sure. in. Exactly. We'll get it right. Yeah. Johnny B. Good plays again that night at the bar mm-hmm. where Jimmy's friend says something that is, I think, the grim truth. If the bomb does go off, you want to be right underneath it. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, mm-hmm. this is something that comes up time and time again. I think that in the war game, they specifically are like, will the living envy the dead? Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, oh, my God. Well, that really comes straight from Hiroshima because people have said that. It's awful. Mm-hmm. I, I mean... These kids are like, I don't want to grow up to be anything. <laughs> yeah. <Ugh. laughs> oh, man. I mean, that's, uh, that's also how I feel, but for different reasons. <laughs> At least we don't have radiation going on as well, though. Yet. 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 <laughs> as Jimmy leaves to go cheat on his fiance, uh. the prime minister releases a message of support for the U.S. actions. Saturday, May 21st, no response from Russia, RE, the U.S. calls for joint retreat from Iran. But the Warsaw Pact countries and England are both sending additional troops to reinforce defensive positions when protests break out along the country, not only for the war in general, but nuclear disarmament in particular, with the group saying that there is no winning a nuclear war. Mm-hmm. Again, very much the case. Several times they talk about, like, would Russia, they would conquer a wasteland of a country. Yeah. Uh, there would be nothing left for them. There are those who claim that they are interested in the economic factors of war and revitalizing industry. This is something that comes up again as well, that Sheffield has lost a lot of the lifeblood of it in terms of that industrial work. And so they, they claim that anyone who opposes the war and supports these social programs is, in fact, a Soviet agent, as there are cries to go back to Russia yeah. and, uh, you know, things that you still very much see today, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Well, there are other couple points to make there. Like the person speaking at that point says, if we had not spent billions of dollars on nuclear war uh, armaments, maybe we could afford uh, economic uh, assistance programs and stuff like that. And also, I feel like this, like these go back to Russia. People are really working off of like uh, Falklands era patriotism that had been stirred up by that conflict. As the U.S. ultimatum expires, they attack a base but their bombers are met with nuclear-tipped defenses, which destroys most of the fleet, and the U.S. responds with a nuclear strike on a Russian base. And I didn't pick so, this up until the second time, but the like the title cards tell us this, but the people in the movie don't discover this for like three or four days that there were even nuclear strikes, right. which I think is obviously what would happen in real life. <laughs> Nobody's going to come out and tell that, but I thought it was really well-done storytelling that I didn't quite catch it first yeah it's it's scary especially because there is so much sort of secrecy that covers so much of the misdeeds Mm. of our governments to the point that like knowing five things that the cia has done (laughs) will make you sound like an insane conspiracy theorist Mm -hmm. (laughs) i think you're totally right that we wouldn't hear about it for a while even in today's age where information is so much quicker and so much more readily available i just don't know and and i think that that is really frightening yeah 
Shortages break out among tinned and storable foods as mediation attempts stall and shop owners raise prices on necessary goods to increase profits off of the panic buying. Again, very scummy, but probably Uh accurate behavior, as we saw with the masks and the uh, hand sanitizer and stuff at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. This whole scene feels very COVID-y to me. Mm -hmm. And it's also like the first chilling point in the movie. Because, like, they're buying all this stuff, and they get mad at the guy, and the woman's like, well, I'm going to put this stuff back on the shelf if you're going to charge this much for it. And then a boy comes in, and it's like, oh, shit, they started fighting. And it sort of feels like the moment, like, when they said, oh, they canceled the NBA. And you're like, oh, this is real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the kid pops in, and he's just like, mom, we got to go. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, fuck. They got to go. <laughs> it's really chilling to me. I don't know why. It's not that even huge a moment in the movie, but it's... Yeah, it really gets to me. And once the actual fighting begins, people start just leaving with their supplies. Yeah. And they start fleeing the city, in fact, in such a hurry that Bill, Ruth's dad, watches his neighbor almost force his daughter to leave without their dog. The greatest crime of all. Mm -hmm. Conflicts, riots, and demonstrations continue to escalate, as does the emergency powers list. And here's where the fascistic tendencies come into play, because they give themselves the ability to arrest known and potential subversives who might not want war with the communist Russians. This movie does not scale back how horrible the government would be, which is surprisingly forthright. They're clearly like, oh, we're going to uh, arrest leftists. Especially for a government-funded project. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's what I was so struck by. Pretty shocking. Mm Mm-hmm. This part is really scary, too, when all the rioting and looting is going on, and the dad's just like, it's so loud, I can't sleep. And the wife is like, oh, it's probably just the pubs letting out. But you could see he's like, this is already over in his mind. He knows there's no stopping it now. It's the 25th now. There are unconfirmed reports of two nuclear explosions in the Middle East. Clive, the local wartime official, has gathered his emergency council. He set up a base in the basement of City Hall. Practice air raid sirens ring out, as do the sirens of fire engines. And, you know, it's pretty easy to say, like we did at the beginning, that this is done sort of in that documentary style, so the way it looks takes a back seat. And to some extent, that absolutely is true. But it's definitely not just thrown out the window. The lights of the truck emerging in triplicate as Jimmy watches from their empty home, a really Mm -hmm. great shot. There's a lot of great shots. There's all the stuff with Jimmy and the birds is like shot really well. Like every time the planes go over, it's very scary. Like the audio work in this is really good. Yeah, even the very next scene where the shots of the workers taking down the artwork in City Hall, yeah. and the crowds roar outside. Really well done. Mm-hmm. It's also really impactful as Ruth slowly starts to cry as they work on their new place. Yeah. That was a really great scene. Very quiet, very understated. And it's just so emotionally impactful to just have this sort of breakdown. There is so much happening in their lives that mm-hmm. would be stressful without the threat yeah. of nuclear apocalypse. Mm-hmm. It's 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 rough. I got a little bit of that, too, of the, I don't know if he's the mayor, but whoever the official is, with his wife packing up his bags and leaving. Ooh, that was sad, too. Mm-hmm. And, and he was like, why didn't you say something? You yeah. didn't want me to take this. And he's <sighs> like, well, I have to do my duty. And go, mm. and then later we'll find out he gets there and half the people didn't show up because <laughs> they wanted to be with their wives, and it's so much sadder. He could have just walked away. He could have done it. Mm-hmm. I will say I did love the kids saying, like, oh, yeah, school is canceled. That's right. <laughs> we got the notice. And the other girl going, oh, man, I had a history test today. <laughs> like, what a dork. Friggin' nerd. <laughs> At 8.35 the next morning in the U.K., 
3.30 in the U.S. to get the slowest possible Western response time, a single nuke explodes above the North Sea, shorting out many electronics and communications grids. But what's really terrifying to me is the way we get to really see the individual reactions. You know, it starts out as mass hysteria, but soon we get to check in with individuals. A woman who pees herself in terror. Yeah. A man whose face gets, like, shredded from exploding glass. An elderly woman who can't get down the stairs quickly to avoid the wind and fire. Even Michael, the younger brother from the family we've been with, crying in the aviary. And the whole time, this mushroom cloud lingers over it. Part of 80 megatons that have fallen across the UK with casualties between 2.5 and 9 million people. Yeah, this section is just all about it. I really like the part before this, like the morning, where you're getting all the horrible, old, outdated preparedness advice and the very blank British voice of, here's what to do if someone dies (laughs) in your home. And it's very just blank, wrap them in a towel if you can't keep them in your house more than five days or you'll get sick, so you better send them out. Yeah, put them in a shallow grave Mm -hmm. and mark the place. It's like, oh my god. And then also at the moment at the bunker for the officials, when it all goes down, they hear the alarm. It was like, oh, is this a real one? And they don't know for a few moments. Yeah. Which just to me speaks to like all the missed opportunities where we almost had. There's one in Russia, the 83 one, where they had the new missile system and it detected like an ICBM incoming from the United States. And fortunately, the guy in charge there was like, oh, that's double check. (laughs) Yeah. And it found out it was just the reflection of the sun off the clouds. Wow. Yeah. That sun is a tricky motherfucker. Mm-hmm. You gotta watch him. <laughs> well, at least they didn't blow it up. <laughs> so true. Oh, man, that was my favorite line <laughs> from that movie. <laughs> but it doesn't stop there. The East and the West wind up exchanging 30,000 megatons of nuclear strikes, with 210 of it falling directly on the UK. Two-thirds of England is on fire. Not just things, but people melt. And it starts in complete silence. It's a horrifying inferno with no intention of stopping for corpse or living person or even kitten. And nobody is coming to rescue those who survived. That cat is okay. That is a reversed shot of it on very, very high on catnip. I did also check to make sure that that was the case and was very happy to see that uh, it was in fact having a wonderful time. Yeah, that's good. Now comes the fallout. As most of the windows are broken and a substantial portion of the roofs are as well, The radioactive dust gets into everyone's home, bringing with it radiation sickness. For now, identical to symptoms of panic, puking, diarrhea, and incontinence. And we see it all play out in Mm, terrifying life. Yeah, just upsetting. Yeah. uh, Especially the grandma. That was really rough. Like, that lady's performance is so good. I'm so ashamed, and you really feel it. Like, it's uh, so sad. I think that this is where some of the naturalism comes into play, in that... If an with an actor approaching that, mm. it's easy to see how it would have become farcical, mm-hmm. or at least feeling like it's someone trying to act that way. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, not the case with this old lady mm. who, as far as I can tell, genuinely shit herself. <laughs> May twenty ninth, no communications with County HQ for two days. Those in power attempt to push past their morning and keep everything running. But no food distribution is likely for two weeks, and emotions are high as everyone weeps for the dead and wishes that they had joined them, cramped into their bunkers and lean-tos. This is also where Rose, we hear from her that she does not want to have this baby because what is the fucking point? 
So true. Jimmy's gone. Yeah. By the way, Jimmy's gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. He must be. We never see his body, but he's got to be. He's got to be. He, try, he he makes a run for it. He yeah. tries to check on Rose. Comic and, book uh, rules. Maybe he'll show up and be out on again. Can't wait to bring him back. <laughs> <laughs> the responsibility of power and his personal loss have hardened Clive, the wartime officer, and he asks what the point of wasting food on people who are going to die anyway is, which is, for my money, one of the worst things you can ask. And here's the second one where they just break capitalism down to its basic roots. The apparently worker lady in charge of workers says, I need that food to force people to work. <laughs> yeah, they won't do it otherwise. <laughs> it's, it's very grim, especially when we cut back to Bill and his wife, and they're in agony and puking mm-hmm. and out of water which I actually really like this moment where a tiny bit of water comes out and he's not expecting it. Yeah. So he doesn't even actually catch it. And then he just like laughs slash sobs dejectedly. And even what he picks up to put under it, I think is a colander with holes. In it. Yeah. No thought put into this plan whatsoever. No, not at all. Uh, across town, <laughs> Ruth's grandmother dies and Ruth heads out into the city while her family is distracted. Fortunately, they heard the radio and they move her to a different room. Great thinking. Yeah. Rose's family. That saves them, I bet. I bet they're <laughs> Yeah, I bet so, too. <laughs> June 5th, 10 days after the attack. Basically, just rubble at this point, and those still alive are advised not to leave their homes for two hours at the maximum, depending on where you live, due to radiation. The water is toxic, corpses every few feet, the awful, awful imagery of a shell-shocked woman clutching an already dead baby to her chest. This is... Truly one of the most nightmarish images that I've seen in a very, very long time. Straight from history, that's a big part of the Hiroshima story. It's a young woman who won't let go of her child because she asks the priest who is helping people there to go find her husband so she can show him the baby before they bury it. Wow. Yeah. A hundred million tons of smoke come from a 3,000 megaton exchange of nukes, and it lifts 500 million tons of dust into the atmosphere creating a blanket that blocks out the sun. Please bring me back my microphone, Stevie. (laughs) The temperature drops in large land masses as high as 25 degrees Celsius or 77 degrees Fahrenheit, and people are dying and desperate, clamoring outside the food storage and being immediately fired upon by the police who gas the crowd and kills one young man who scales the gate. Again, shockingly honest Mm -hmm. in its portrayal of the way that the police would sort of serve as this bodyguard of stuff. (laughs) Like that's what they're there to do. They're not actually there to protect the people who are dying of starvation and thirst. They're there to protect the things that can be utilized as leverage for work. Mm -hmm. Also, I think this part is like the most scientifically accurate of any of these because even the day after doesn't really depict nuclear winter. Like everything's just still sunny. But no, it would be clouds for, like, weeks because of all the dust in the air. It's a lot of dust. Mm -hmm. Just millions of tons of small dust. Saturday, June 11th, doctors can't do much to help the sick and the dying who grow exponentially. Rations are being cut back to 1,000 calories for workers, 500 for everyone else. They're also not sure where to house criminals. Someone suggests just shooting them all. He probably thought that before nuclear war to be true, though. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, It's incredible how this manages to keep growing grimmer, not only in how the plans continue to be much more upsetting, but also the scenery does keep managed to degrading as well, which Mm -hmm. is frankly very impressive because it starts off pretty fucked up. Friday, June 17th, 
The scene of the rats climbing on the corpses as the wind just howls around them, yeah. incredibly unsettling. Just the sound of it is so good. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Raiders break into and kill Ruth's parents. They actually are not okay. I apologize for misleading you out there, folks. Uh, well, for all we know, they died naturally. <laughs> Sure, sure. Hey, I'm on the looter's side. The police come in and fucking shoot them and then complain about what kind of chips they got. Yes, they steal scant supplies. Uh, Ruth's parents did not have much to steal, but when these looters are immediately, one is shot by police and the rest are stopped. And then the guy does say, oh, what flavored chips are those? And he's like, oh, they're cheddar. And he's like, oh, I hate that flavor. <laughs> it was it was a weird one. It was like prawn cocktail or something like oh, that's, that. Yeah, that always <laughs> sounds good, but that actually just means cocktail sauce, which is gross. Also, a whole bag of it, even if you're like, I could I could get through one or two of them, but to have a whole bag of it, that's a lot. The Brits love it. That's one of the most popular flavors. Wow. I don't know what you're doing over there, England. Going back to those food guys earlier, I really love that they say, we have no authority to distribute food. Like, <laughs> yeah. There's no authority left. Who are you, exactly. boot liquor? And that's, that's what people respond with, and they're just like, mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> The narrator stops by again to describe the economic conditions, specifically that money is now useless, so food is currency, given as a reward for work and withheld for punishment. And as they sit there gnawing on moldy bread, in the back of everyone's mind looms the thought that the more people die, the more food is left for survivors. Another great shot as Jimmy's father, now barely holding it together, leans up against the grave as an angel looks down on the camp that's been established in the cemetery. Really powerful scene as well. This is also where he plays video games by firelight, which is a nice (laughs) contrast of the old world and the new. Absolutely. Cholera, typhoid, and dysentery are common. These epidemics are exacerbated by the 10 to 20 million unburied corpses littering the country with no fuel for cremation or heavy machinery and a waste of manpower to bury them by hand. A month after the attack, looting is also becoming increasingly common and improvised detention camps are erected. The look we get here at the masked cop is fucking terrifying. (laughs) Well, that's why he's the header image of the movie. For good reason. It is incredible. Did we skip the hospital? Maybe. I think we did. That's like the most fucked up part of the movie. Well, so talk about it. Okay. It's like a zombie movie. Like Ruth goes to the hospital, presumably to get treatment for being a pregnant woman. She just sees the hordes of like injured, bloodied people. She wanders through these rooms, which feel like they had, it feels like, like a Salvador Dali painting (laughs) of just like bleak square walls with, as though the building had no furniture or anything to start with. <laughs> it's really upsetting. The floors are literally just flowing with blood. Oof. People are sawing people's legs off. And the narrator comes in to be like, in the absence of machinery, <laughs> electricity, or any medicine, doctors are essentially useless. <laughs> oh. yeah, yeah, I guess I, I kind of wrapped that up in uh, doctors can't do much to help survivors. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> but yes, it is a hell of a scene, to yeah. be sure. I mean, I can only say it's bleak so many times before it loses its meaning, but it is in the truest sense of the word. Like, this feels like a glimpse into the future that we don't want. And the fact that it does have that feeling of inevitability, which even if it is not as common in today's culture, I think it does permeate the movie in a way that does bring you into it. Mm -hmm. It's it's really something else. The rescue team finally makes it into the city hall base only to find everyone inside long dead. Whoops. <laughs> Whoops, indeed. <laughs> Five weeks in, there is officially no water, sanitation, and no electricity. They're also running low on fuel and food. Fallout deaths are approaching their peak, 
The faceless mass of people leaving the city in search of food are sad and scary at the same time. This is a moment that also felt like a zombie movie to me, was this sort of just horde of people just yeah. walking out of the city with nowhere to go. Sort of feels like the evacuation of Rohan, too. So true. Some of the refugees do make it to Buxton, 20 miles away. And a police officer forces an old codger to take them in. But as soon as the cop is gone, he throws them out. This was another really heartbreaking moment for me. Yeah. And stolen right from the war game again. Yeah. Look, you take what works from, from yeah. the movie. And, I mean, it worked uh, in both of them. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It doesn't really make sense to me because there were four people going into this old man's house. I'm like, just team up. You can fight <laughs> him off. very old. Yeah. <laughs> Fragile hips. There are four of you. <laughs> Six weeks after, Ruth finds someone to finally team up with again when Jimmy's pal Bob spites her at a feeding center. They flee the city and find a sheep that they take the contamination risk with and eat. Raw. Raw. And uh, Bob skins it because so he's going to go north and he, he needs it for the cold. I bet he survives. I bet he survives. He's the real comic book comeback guy. Yeah, we never see him again. He'll be Sheep Man. That's right. He made it up north. He found the the people who all ha- who all survived and mm-hmm. kept civilization going. Yep, it's like reverse Frostpunk. Bob is coming back in a big way, folks. Yep. Four months after the attack, Ruth tries to sleep, but is haunted by several images that we've seen: Jimmy in the aviary, a healthy baby in the stroller, the woman with the dead baby, and as she closes her eyes we see the direct effects of the attack, which are specifically between 17 and 38,000 deaths from the blast, heat, and fallout, plus a weakened surviving population. Additionally, because the attack happened in the spring, the dark and cold reduce plant activity and preclude agriculture. Yep. Ruth's pregnancy has also been heavily irradiated, so the movie lets us know that the babies exposed to radiation like this see a higher risk of physical deformities and cognitive development issues, when Ruth has the baby alone and in a pile of hay, it seems as though her daughter is lucky enough to avoid this. And it's a real relief moment for us and Ruth as she weeps with like joy and despair and a thousand emotions at the fact that now she has a baby to take care of <laughs> in this inhospitable environment yeah. where it's hard enough to keep one person going. Yeah, and a dog barks at you the whole time you give birth. Ugh, the worst. <laughs> but when the baby arrives, it does start stop barking, so I guess... Dogs can sense that kind of thing. <laughs> she also has to bite the umbilical cord herself and clean the baby like she's in the brood. I think it was probably barks of support, which is why it stopped when the baby was born. I don't know. It was a German <laughs> shepherd. We don't know if it was an East German or a West German shepherd. And yeah, and she did have to chew through it, which this is where that uh, licorice <laughs> yeah. umbilical cord came into play. Once again, you couldn't tell. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Christmas Day, it's yet another few months later. The scene opens with a very nativity scene look to it, and the baby is crying, and everyone around the fire is in a complete daze. A very quiet moment, especially compared to the destruction that we've seen, but I think it is still also very impactful in terms of just looking at these people in shell shock. And there are no presents. It's the worst part, in my opinion. So, no but, frankincense and myrrh yeah. for this baby? Come Se- on. Secret Christmas up. movie. <laughs> wow. It really is. <laughs> it really is. Put this on at your Christmas party. See how that goes <laughs> over. <laughs> One year after the attack, the life insurance billboard with a healthy baby mocks <laughs> the survivors. As Ruth buys rats to eat. Right. People barter for rats. Mm. Uh, the sun is finally peeking through the clouds again, but now the ultraviolet radiation is stronger, leading to widespread cataracts and increases in cancers. 
They also have no furniture or anything, so the crops moving forward are crap, eaten by bugs and disease. Yeah. We forgot earlier that we got to witness the last time tractors were ever used in England. Yes, that's true. Another another real poignant moment. <laughs> Which seemed like a waste when they were just picking the wheat out of the chaff. <laughs> yeah, they uh, probably could have saved that, to yeah. be honest. Wait until you're uh, growing corn or something. <laughs> you know, they said, who knows if we'll be around for that. Uh, well, yeah, fair. <laughs> fair. <laughs> Three to eight years after the attack. Population has reached its nadir, and England has gone back to between 4 and 11 million people, a medieval level. Mm. Ten years after the attack, Ruth's daughter has been helping her in the fields, and Ruth collapses while working. Brought to her bed, she looks like it's been 50 years, not 10. Ruth's daughter speaks broken English, trying to get her to get up and work. By itself, pretty (laughs) upsetting. That's really weird. And Ruth finally expires, holding her daughter's hand. The daughter, however, sheds no tears. She takes a few of Ruth's belongings and swiftly leaves. And one of the books that she leaves behind is the birding book from the father that she never knew, which I thought was a really... I don't want to say a nice moment because it's it's not <laughs> nice, but it's it's like a, a good moment for the movie to be like, oh shit! Like mm-hmm. they really just feel no connection to it. There, that is a completely they've moved beyond that world. It just does not yeah. exist anymore. These ten years might as well be a century, right? It would appear, however, that some vestiges of the old world have started to return, like electricity, which powers the entertainment for kids of all ages, yep. <laughs> which is an old educational tape. Very creepy and works very well in sort of a Candle Cove kind of way. Absolutely. And some industry, as the kids all work on pulling apart old clothes for textile work. Yeah. This is where we sort of get into The Giver or some sort of (laughs) kids YA apocalypse novel. Right, right. We're 13 years after the attack. Coal and steam power have come back in a major way. Ruth's daughter has caught a rabbit, now known as a coney. Yeah. Like the hobbits. (laughs) Sure, I can get behind that. Maybe she can find some potatoes. Boil them, mash them, (laughs) stick them in a stew. But two boys try to take it before asking her to join their group. Their little band steals some food. One of them is promptly shot, but Ruth's daughter and the other boy make it away where they eat, and he rapes her. Yeah, they couldn't couldn't get by without one of those. Right. Yeah. It's uh, thankfully not fully explicit on screen. Yeah. They are... 13 years old mm-hmm. which is pretty awful in and of itself but are we going to discuss how they're apparently droogs now or something they speak their own <laughs> language even though it's only 13 years later right hey. i couldn't tell if that meant that all children born were like disabled or if mm-hmm. they were supposed to have developed it that quickly it's very unclear yeah i think that there it's more of just there's no one there to give them an education yeah what I about know, the old it, grandma it in the skeleton movie <laughs> she's all fucked up she loves that movie, though. She, she loves, loves that movie. <laughs> she she lip syncs it. She could win on Drag Race, man. Who could blame her? That movie is... It's a, I mean, that's my pick for my best horror movie ever made. Skeleton. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. That fucking video is weird as hell. But after this rape, Jane is the daughter's name. It's never explicitly said in the mm. movie, but that is the name given to this girl. Uh, Jane is pregnant now, wandering the wastes. We faintly hear Johnny Be Good, which had played on the radio at the very beginning and a few other times as well. Bodies are strung up, only their legs in frame with a swinging light in the distance and another amazing shot. Yeah. A person runs by and appears to get shot. Mm, sure does. Right out of what we're about to learn is a hospital. 
Not sure what happened there. Yeah, she makes it into this hospital where she has the baby. And while she escaped any deformities from the radiation, her child is not so lucky. And it's swaddled in a bloody pile and then handed to her. And we get a freeze frame right as she's about to scream. Title card, Finn, credits roll over, dead silence. What a picture. Holy shit. Man, that last shot really worked for me that it stops right before she screams. Mm -hmm. You can see it on her face that she's about to scream, but we don't hear anything. And then the quiet of the credits as well, I think, is is another kind of power move Mm -hmm. (laughs) that works really well. Well, they know you're not going to want to hear anything but your own thoughts as you sit at home. Like, Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, when you watch something that has David Bowie (laughs) for the intro, Uh, (laughs) and it doesn't have quite the same feeling as as something that's a little more restrained with the music. But now... Russell, we've reached the point of the episode where we say why this is not just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made, and I'm going to let you kick things off. You know why? It's because it's the most horrifying movie ever made. It's not Jason and his seven kills. It's every (laughs) world leader, and there are millions of kills. Yeah. I also think this serves an end. Uh, Clearly, it is not a let's examine the both sides of what could happen in war. It's this is a horrifying what could happen. Never let this happen movie. Mm-hmm. Like I think with horror, it's not really used in the same way as like comedy. I feel like there's a lot of talk about like satire and comedy can truly change the world. Like <laughs> it's such a, like a modern neoliberal viewpoint. It's like, if we laugh at them, we will make all the changes <laughs> we need. And clearly after watching this, you're like horror is a much more effective form to use in changing people's perception of, of things. And I feel like you don't see that a lot in the genre. I think mm-hmm. it, there's a lot of potential there. And like, this is just so like realistic in a lot of oddly like idiosyncratic ways. The effects really work, even though they're no money. It's just, it touches you. I think I told you this when I first watched the movie, like I was legitimately moved to like tears, the whole bomb panic section of the movie which is like 10 minutes long yeah that's something i found in horror movies or not even horror movies that's something that weirdly gets to me like i watched jaws 3d recently and even the part where the people are trapped underwater like those extras are so weirdly good that you're like <laughs> this is terrifying these people yeah. are trapped with the public in a space they will die there's like an old man who holds his heart the whole time. You're like, that old man is going to die in Jaws 3D. It's the big one, Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that really gets to me. But I think everything in this movie just gets under your skin. I totally agree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is just so fucking scary. It is just a fucking scary movie. Uh, that That is foundationally why this is the best horror movie ever made. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of other great stuff in it, but the idea of a nuclear apocalypse is just so truly terrifying at my core. Mm-hmm. It It is so damaging to the environment and everyone in it. And as you said, we're so powerless to do anything about it. By the time that we're affected by it, all the all the decisions have already yeah. been made. And I think that's what works more even better about it is because, like, most of these are from a British perspective. There is sort of sense to that. And, like, the British were 
sort of America's secondary ally. The British aren't really making any decisions here either. The Americans and the Soviets are holding us all hostage if we're British. And we, even if we could influence our leaders, our leaders can't really influence anything either. It's so potent of a story. It is that the, the naturalism of the way it's shot is so effective in helping to create an environment for that scare of nuclear apocalypse and make it feel real. The way it's shot does not preclude some amazing shot work. I mean, we've pointed out several scenes where things really jump out as being beautiful. These, these moments of respite sort of where you can look at it as a movie (laughs) and not as this looming apocalypse that it does sometimes feel inevitable. And, the idea of nuclear proliferation is just so fucking stupid. Yeah. It's so bad. And the idea that we reached a point ever where it was like mutually assured destruction was the flavor of the month. <laughs> like The flavor of the three decades. Sure. Even worse. Like, how? It's just so fucking stupid. Yeah. And hopefully, if you're listening to this and you think nuclear weapons are a good idea, I uh, entreat you to check out threads and i think that your mind will be changed it is a real a real bad thing yeah and uh, hopefully nuclear weapons are never used again so that's my two cents <laughs> fingers crossed you know why this is also the best movie because it's a good bridge to other horror movies that i would not have even enjoyed not necessarily horror movies i guess but apocalypse movies that i was like these are silly they yeah. feel more plausible now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Russell, this was an absolute delight. I'm grateful to you for <laughs> making this very dark conversation as palatable for everyone as possible with me. Please, uh, if you have anything that you want to plug, if you don't have anything to plug, shout out something that you're enjoying lately. I think we should plug the war game, When the Wind Blows. Sure. The next, All those. The next day, those are good. Yeah. I'm also going to plug this in the chance of actually making it finally go through and happen. Uh, I have been working on a podcast project called Rambled Testaments of History. I have found some very rambling, strange uh, people from history who are telling their stories, and you can listen to them. I'm compiling them and presenting them, and that will be out, you know, in a few weeks, maybe. Check it out. Cool. Yeah. Sounds awesome. Well, I definitely look forward to checking that out. As far as my plugs, you can check out the Patreon at Little Horror PHL if you want bonus episodes, all kinds of great stuff. The the bonus, I you know what? Not to toot my own horn, but the bonus episodes are good. Mm -hmm. I get to talk about Solaris on one of those bonus episodes, and uh, I have already talked about how much I love that movie, so you know that I went in on that episode. And there's all kinds of great stuff. We talk about EC Comics. It's not specifically limited to movies. We even talked about Freaky Friday once as the best horror movie ever made. There's a pretty fantastic uh, law debate. There's a couple of those. Three. A couple, couple, uh, couple of great legal thrillers on mm-hmm. there. So all kinds of great stuff for you to check out. You can also follow me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. We are coming up on episode 100. So look forward to a very fun episode that I'm looking forward to putting out for that. I'm not going to tell anyone what it is, but it's going to be good. And we're also going to do something fun for once we have covered 100 movies because there is not, there are five bonus episodes that are not movie related. So something might be coming out for that. I have a guess. I'm not going to say it here. (laughs) Okay. Well, tell me off air. 
Also, I Psycho am going to say this. at the beginning. Yes, you got it. <laughs> we have been at 49 reviews for so long. And I just want to get to 50, folks. If one person out there can get on iTunes and be like, five friggin' stars, I love this podcast. That's all you have to do. It's and so please easy. mention me. I need the affirmation. Great. So specifically say that this episode was great and you think that nukes are a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, we'll, spread, we'll spread the word through iTunes and that'll be how we change the world. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Change starts with you and me and this podcast. Thanks so much, Russell, and have a good one, everyone. Bye. Bye.